genre. In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. Now, my guests today, they're not afraid of anything. They're fast and strong like a big wind. They can hear hundreds of miles and see a hundred miles underwater. They can hide in the shadow of a noon sun. They can be right behind you and won't you won't even know until you're dead. So, Julie and Rick, is Waterworld a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? I think it should be remade. And I wholeheartedly agree with my co-host. I think so as well. <laughs> so hello, it's technically I'm meeting you both for the first time. How are you both doing today? So we're doing pretty fine. We're glad you invited us on. We uh, have a rather close connection to Waterworld yeah. because we've spent so much time with it. And the idea of talking about a potential remake with you is very exciting. Yeah. So you were both recommended to me by previous guest of the show, Norm Mitchell. And when he found out, oh, you're going to you want to do a remake of Waterworld, you have to get Rick and Julia. And I was like, great. So. For people who are listening to my past, my, my past, my podcast, who are not familiar with you two and Mad Max Minute, why don't you tell us, let's start by, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Certainly. Julia and I are the hosts of the Mad Max Minute, and since 2017, we have been chronicling the Mad Max movies one minute at a time. And most recently, we have been covering Waterworld two minutes at a time. Oh. Yes, we chose to do the the Ulysses cut so it's nearly three hours and at three hours we decided to do two minutes at a time instead of one minute at a time because we really didn't want it to take forever <laughs> forever sure this is frankly this is a filler movie for us <laughs> we have finished all of the Mad Max movies and we're just waiting for George Miller to make more so that we can keep going and He's pushing things back, and we're still waiting. So we needed to do something else. We we really enjoy this creative outlet uh, that we've gotten ourselves into, and we didn't want to just stop. So Waterworld. That makes sense. Is the next filler movie going to be Tank Girl? It's on our list. It's been on our list for a very long time. I mean, I yeah, assume, we... like, stylistically, those are the kinds of movies you're going for? We have an extensive list ah. of movies that... We're either covering in a hiatus or maybe we're talking about in a one-off on our Patreon. We are really hoping that the dice fall where they may as far as production is concerned. And we get the Furiosa movie sooner than later. Uh, the the worldwide calamity <laughs> has really slowed things down. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, with casting news coming out seemingly every other month about Furiosa. We look to the horizon and hope that we see a post-apocalyptic vehicle shape cresting the ridge and heading our way soon. Hey, but Waterworld, as far as a filler movie, <laughs> Waterworld is such a great filler movie because it did come in that weird time between 1985 when Thunderdome came out and 2015 when Fury Road came out. 1995 was just a sweet spot right in the middle where, 
you know, suddenly Kevin Costner and Kevin, Kevin Reynolds show up and say, hey, look at this. Isn't <laughs> this like Mad Max? And everyone says, eh, you know, yeah, kind of. Yeah, we'll give that to you. It's a thing. So this is one of the, I can't say it's the only time, but it's definitely one of the first times when my guests have given me homework. And I appreciate <laughs> it. So you sent me <laughs> the original script and the Ulysses cut, which is this three-hour cut that you were talking about. And I mm-hmm. read the script on Saturday. I watched the uh, Ulysses cut yesterday. And they're very different. Oh, my goodness. They are so different. I yeah. mean, one of them has women with agency, and the other one is Waterworld. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I've exchanged yeah. a few emails with Peter Rader, who is the primary screenplay by credit for this movie. And he originally thought up the idea. He wrote up a couple of spec scripts and then he tried shopping them around. And eventually the script was purchased. But then the script was given over to David Toohey and, you know, a few lines here and there were added by. Uh, Joss Whedon, who was every nerd's favorite, and now that we know more about him, we're all really wary about him. Yeah. But basically, the Waterworld movie is all pretty much David Toohey and Joss Whedon. The bones of it, of what Peter Rader put to script, are still there in places. And when I think about the idea of a remake... I wanted you to have this original script because there are so many worthwhile ideas that are in there. I think so too. And I, and I was very glad to read it because so my history with this movie is I had seen it once sort of when I was in seventh grade. So I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. When I was in seventh grade, we took a school trip uh, to uh, Mexico. I think we went to Puerto Vallarta and on the bus ride, either to or from that trip, the bus had screens and one of the movies played was Waterworld. And I remember a lot of it. So, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and I I remember reading the script. I was like, well, this is different. This is really different. I kept waiting for, in the script, the drifter is named Morgan. Uh, and I kept waiting for Morgan to go in the water and do the gills thing. And he never went in the water and did the gills thing. Like 60 pages in, he's finally in the water and he has a breathing device. And I'm like, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's interesting. Like one of the movies I kept thinking about when reading the script is there was a movie that came out last year called Love and Monsters, which is another mm-hmm. dystopian movie. Yeah, and, we've covered it. Oh, have you? It's yes. great. I genuinely love it. It is. Movie. It was so good. Yeah. And just like the idea of the bad guy villains who like like take their futuristic uh mutant animal and use it to like wreak havoc. That kept happening in the script and I was like, "Ah, oh, it's Love and Monsters." Worse, but it's Love and Monsters. <laughs> yeah. But okay, so you've both covered Waterworld, but do you remember the first time you both saw the movie? Ha! Oh. <laughs> uh, no. Specifics? No. I probably saw it having rented it from Blockbuster, like, after it came out from the theaters to Blockbuster. That's probably when I saw it. Like, 96, which would have put me at, like, 15. Yeah, I'm betting that's when I saw it. It's the kind of movie my dad would have rented. From the, from the video store. Yeah. <laughs> I, on the other hand, first saw this movie 
in one of those network premiere Sunday afternoon fill the TV block type situations where there's literally nothing on the TV except for golf. And so you switch over <laughs> to the higher numbered stations and they're just showing movies to fill time. And Waterworld seemed to be one of those movies that was commonly played as an option. So I saw this on television a lot, and it was a long time before I sat down and actually watched a theatrical version of the film, which arguably is better than watching it with TV interruptions. <laughs> you, you don't know. I don't know. So, like, you had me watch the Ulysses cut, which... Um, right. What What is in the Ulysses cut that is missing from the original? For, so pe- for the people U- who may have seen the original and haven't seen this version. Right. So the Ulysses cut takes not only the theatrical version of the movie, but also several deleted scenes and alternative shots that were included in the television version. So Hmm. the theatrical cut, two hours, 15 minutes, the Ulysses cut, round about three hours. So there's 45 minutes of additional footage that includes things like a scene where the Atoll elders are discussing items that they found on the Mariner ship. It includes a scene where the Mariner is listening to a CD player at night. And uh, another one where the pilot of the scout plane, who is Jack Black, most people forget about that detail because he's in the theatrical cut so infrequently, but he's there being talked to by Dennis Hopper to get all this information about the Trimoran. There are just extra scenes that add extra flavor to the overall story. And some people consider the theatrical cut a superior version because of pacing. I consider the Ulysses cut superior because of content. I'm a content hound. Yeah. I want that background stuff. And, you know, sometimes you just don't need that much. Because the, the three scenes you just mentioned... Like, I loved all three of those. Like, the scene was like, we're like, oh, yeah, well, it's not just his physical appearance. He has these crazy things that no one else should have. And, like, I I think that was interesting. Like, the scene where he's listening to, uh, I want to say Miles Miles Davis Mm -hmm. uh, on his boat. Like, I thought that was a genuinely lovely scene. It makes absolutely no sense and shouldn't be happening. Batteries can't exist anymore. But the important thing (laughs) is, I really liked it because I thought it was like, oh, because the vast majority of this movie, the Mariner is just like, ah, I'm a dick, but mm-hmm. now I'm okay. But like, it's <laughs> it's this brief moment of humanity before he has his actual full turn. I thought that that was cool. And then just more, more Jack Black's always good. Exactly. Yeah, he was criminally underused in the original movie. And how deep into, like, I'm just in terms of like Jack Black timeline. This is still fairly early Jack Black. So it's it's not like I think they did they know what they had? I don't think so. I don't think yeah, I think that's exactly it. They didn't know what they had. Cuz I mean part if like Jack Black wasn't in the original, he would make perfect recasting for uh Deacon. Mm. Like he'd be a lot of fun. Just like the he big and then the small and then the big and then the small. Ah. That's an excellent point. I would love to see him in some capacity in a remake. Usually I'm not I'm not big on callbacks yeah. and bringing people back for the sake of a connection to an original. But considering that he was so poorly used in the original, it would be fun to give him another chance. 
I mean, the, the kind of callbacks and references like that are how we got the most recent Predator movie, which everyone agrees. Anyway, the... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, okay, so I think that's kind of a, a sense of what the difference in the cuts, but I feel like we should also discuss the script a little bit. Because mm. in the script, it doesn't start with the Mariner. And... It feels like the movie as it exists, like, oh, we got Kevin Costner. Let's rewrite the movie to, to make Kevin Costner much more of the main character. Because in the script you sent me, it's much more about Helen and Nola and Helen's sister, Angel. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of our main characters, and then Morgan, the Mariner, is also there. Right. Uh, one of the things that I listed in my dream for a remake... I have different ideas written down in bullet form. Um, Helen needs to be the main character of Waterworld. Because while the Mariner is... He's a big actor. You know, you got Kevin Costner coming in. uh, Arguably getting this movie made. But at the end of the day, Helen is the important one. Because she is Enola's caregiver. She has this connection to the map to dry land she has this community that she's got to rally around her and for lack of a better term helen is our luke skywalker the mariner is our han solo han solo is fun to have around and he facilitates movement but and you know i if we were a few years ago and solo hadn't come out I would be more accurate to say that Han Solo is not the main character of a movie. Don't ma- don't put him up at front. You need someone like Helen who you know is not used to being out in the wide world. You know, she needs to bring us out there so that she can learn and we can watch her grow. And I think I agree with you. I I think that's important. I think Especially because she's the one who starts the movie with a want. Therefore, that's what should drive the story. Right, it's her call to adventure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that happens fairly well in the original movie. That it's her call to adventure, and then the movie just kind of veers off of her. Yeah. Pretty quick. Yeah. That she's not the one who's actually going to fulfill that call to adventure. Yeah, and and I think that's part of the problem, and that's one of the things I bumped against in the version of the movie that we actually watched, where this is a woman who's living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape, and she seems fairly useless. Like, I don't think you get to live in a post-apocalyptic hellscape and be useless, unless you are the child, and even the child shouldn't be useless. Yeah, the subject of Enola not being able to swim... Uh, I always found laughable and Julia has done a very good job explaining to me in the past that if you live in a society that is built on boats, being able to swim is good, but the idea is that you don't fall off the boat. It's how I always, I, I'm always surprised by the fact that the U S Navy does not have a swimming requirement when you get recruited and Julia's all like, yeah, you're not supposed to get off the boat when you're in the Navy. You stay right. on the boat. The Coast Guard, though, does have a yeah. swimming requirement because you are supposed to get off the boat. But there I mean, are so many instances in this movie where Helen does a good job of portraying someone who has always lived in an atoll and has never had the opportunity to go out into the wider world. 
And I did a couple of listings where I said, okay, well, what works about this Waterworld movie? And I said, well, Gene Triplehorn as Helen does a really good job of portraying someone who has lived a rather sheltered, and I mean physically sheltered by the atoll, and also emotionally sheltered by not having to deal with random drifters out there. She is a bit naive about the human nature in an apocalypse. But (laughs) she does a really good job of walking that line, and I really enjoy watching her become more capable as the movie goes on. That being said... I would prefer for her to start out more capable. I think something in the original movie that's very much underemphasized that would be great to bring a bit more forward in a remake is the sacrifices that Helen has made mm-hmm. to be who she is, to be Enola's mother. She had to make a decision, either adopt his child or have a child of your own. And as people who adopt know that, you know, once you once you make that adoption, doesn't like it's they're the same thing. That is your child now. And I, I truly believe that Helen feels that way. This is my child. But to make that choice to not have your own in favor of adopting, that's a difficult choice. Mm-hmm. It also put her in a certain light in the community. It ostracized her automatically a little bit because of that choice. It made her an other in the community, not only is she raising an other, she is now also an other. Yeah. You get a sense of the community's frustration with Helen in both versions of the movie. But but I think it really highlights just how like how much of an uphill climb she has socially, because sure, she has a lot of power as the person who runs the store, but there is an underlying current of animosity between her and and the other people on the atoll. I would potentially buy it if that animosity was played up right from the start and we didn't have to discover it later when yeah. they're trying to decide whether or not to kick the Mariner out. And I think it could even lead into if you want her to learn how to do things, like because she adopted Enola, this community now wouldn't let her get weapons training because they didn't trust her. They wouldn't let her near the food supply because they didn't trust her. And if that's the sort of thing you want to build up to, to de- deplete her of viable skills, that's fine. But then even so, she's the one who ran the store, and we would need to see her skills of being an excellent barterer and haggler. Like, mm-hmm. she has to have this natural charisma of convincing basically an entire Salem not to burn her and this random child that blew in out of the winds as witches. Exactly. Like that is a nat 20 maxing charisma kind of move. And we should be seeing that. Helen needs to have skills that she has cultivated on her own. That may not be the right way to do it, but when you have no one else to help you do it, and that's the way that you've figured out how to make it happen to get it to work. Like, she's got to have her own style of doing things. Like a dad trying to copy and paste a Word document, they figure out their own way to do it, and nothing's going to change them now. It's the wrong way, (laughs) but they can do it. And it gets done. Yep. Uh, A couple other things, if I can... uh, Please, that's what we're here for. Rest control of of the podcast away from you. A couple other things that I think really work in the original Waterworld beside Gene Triplehorn as Helen are the presence of physical sets that have a real weight and texture to them 
and also the incredibly charismatic, if somewhat manic, portrayal of the Deacon by Dennis Hopper. You you mentioned the Deacon bouncing back and forth between super serious and rather off the rails when we mentioned Jack Black. And I think that's one of the really enjoyable things about the original Waterworld that I would be a little sad to see disappear in a remake, but you have to walk a very tight rope when it comes to portrayals. And a lot of people have trouble with Dennis Hopper in this movie. I certainly don't. I also didn't. I thought that like, it's a crazy post-apocalyptic wasteland. If anyone in this movie is sane, no, they're not. (laughs) And like, it's the sort of thing where like, you gotta be a little bit crazy to just survive here. And like Dennis Hopper is a cult leader in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Like he has to be big and bombastic and would have to make people follow him. Mm -hmm. I thought he did a great job. And I loved his, uh, like, what his dreams were. Like, he wanted to find land to kind of, like, recreate the world as it used to be. He's like, we're going to build highways and freeways. Whatever is there, we're going to tear it down and build up things the way it used to be. And it's like, oh, buddy. (laughs) Which does lead into one of my issues with the movie. Uh, And it always kind of bothers me. And it happened in in the script. It happens in the movie. And it's just... It's possibly just me, but this also kind of bothers me in these kinds of movies of the amount of waste that occurs. Mm. So in the script, the the Deacon leader character, I don't remember what his name was, whenever they like took over a fishing boat, like as they left, they would bazooka the whole thing. When uh, the Deacon finds the drifter's boat, they burn it to the ground. And it's the coolest boat in the entire movie by a wide margin and the idea of not just like taking it and like using it because it's really good baffles me yeah and i know for script purposes he needed to be able to go back to it and find enola's drawing but like i haven't seen these movies this is a terrible analogy but in mortal instruments or whatever it is when the giant city machines eat up another city machine they're gonna take it and use all the parts of it Mm mm-hmm and that's the kind of the post-apocalyptic thing. Like, they are on an ocean with, ex- like, they're not going to find extra bonus things. Like, unless the land they happen to find is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, they're not about to be finding more stuff. And yeah. they're just burning and destroying stuff that that's non-replaceable. The Deacon and his smokers could learn a lot from municipal Darwin- Darwinism. Thank you. <laughs> municipal Darwinism. That's, I, I stumbled over it. I had to fix it. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Mortal Engines book. Not necessarily the series, because I haven't gotten that far past the first book. And I enjoyed the movie for what it was. (laughs) I don't think the Mortal Engines movie is one that's going to be making an appearance on your podcast. I I think you'll be hard-pressed to find people who think it needs to be remade. Uh, Here's the thing. (laughs) If someone requests it, I'll talk about it. I have a friend who, like, at some point next year, I'm probably going to remake Casablanca. I mean, Casablanca was already remade, and it's called Barbed Wire. I was not aware of that. Yeah, if you look at the plot of Barbed Wire, starring Pamela Anderson as a post-apocalyptic bounty hunter who wears fetish gear all the time, it is the exact plot of Casablanca. 
Interesting. So that's your homework, listeners. Go out and read the plot synopsis for Barbed Wire <laughs> because it is not worth watching. Oh, man. All right. Cool. <laughs> but yeah, basically, like, if someone requests the movie, like, as long as it's not a horror movie, I'll talk about it. So I've remade weird things. You never know. It could happen. Now someone's going to request Barbed Wire, and I'm going to have to watch it. So thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, that's uh, excellent. Okay, so then let's talk about what we want for our version. What are some important components of Waterworld that need to stay in the movie for whatever version we're going to be making. We'll talk about what we want to change and make different in a second, but what are the important pieces that are important? So first and foremost on my list, the Mariner needs to stay a mutant. I think him being physically and genetically different from everybody else in the cast is a very important thing. I also think we need to keep physical sets. Maybe don't film them in the middle of the ocean, but keep those structures that you can walk up and slam your fist against it's going to make a huge difference in the final production. Absolutely. Yeah. I will caveat of, if you are going to film in the middle of the ocean, have bathrooms. I'm sorry. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> yeah. Julia, what do you, what, uh, what do you think? I think the Mariner needs to go on a, perhaps a B plot journey instead of the A plot journey where he lets somebody in mm. to his heart. That he opens up to somebody. I like the, I like the Mariner as a character because he is spends so much time being isolated, both physically and emotionally, because of his differences. And I like that somebody, Enola, and then Helen break that shell. And I think it could happen a little bit better, but I like that it happens. I think that's something that could be really important to yeah. stick around. I really like the relationship between... Anola and the Mariner, and it definitely needs to survive over into a remake. I agree. I think that that's important because just based on just the way they were born, they're outcasts. Mm -hmm. And that's like the bond that the Mariner and Enola should share. And I agree with you completely, Julie. I think that's correct. Uh, what what else? What else needs to stay? What are the important pieces of the movie as, as it exists? So I think the, the Atoll... Definitely needs to stick around. It's an excellent setting. I would much rather have um, a lot of our movie taking place on something that is ramshackle and put together as opposed to changing it to something like a cruise ship or something like that. Um, you need to establish Helen as living in a ramshackled uh, conglomeration of people that are working together to survive by the skin of their teeth. I think that's really important. Um, you definitely need to keep the deacon and the Nord. Not necessarily that like the deacon is the leader of the smokers specifically. I'll get into changes once we get to that point. But I really like having the Nord represent a sort of antithesis to the Mariner. The Nord is charismatic and outgoing and attractive. The Mariner is surly and antisocial and rather ugly with his mutations. And to see the Nord represent people accepting him, but then he does evil things, whereas the Mariner is rejected, but he does fairly good things, that dichotomy absolutely needs to stay. Yeah, they let the Nord in and then he ruins their pizza. It's disappointing. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Something else I think should stick around is an epic location like the D's. Absolutely. The the antagonist organization, however it pans out, needs to have an epic home base. Something that is impressive, something that can be overpopulated. That's part of their big motivation for all that they're doing, is that their location is overpopulated. Uh, so I would be interested in some sort of modern interpretation of the Ds. Back in 1995, the Exxon Valdez, that was something that was more in the forefront of people's minds. Oh, this big tanker, everybody knows the name of it. So what is something that kind of exists to us similarly now? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you want something that's large and sprawling enough to be impressive, but something that you can also trigger multiple explosions all over and have it go out in a spectacular fashion. Yes, explosions. <laughs> that's another thing that needs to stick around. So I have... I didn't add a recasting of the Exxon Valdez uh, on my list, but I have a pitch for you. It's okay. super current. Uh, what was that cruise ship that had to be stopped on the on uh, at, oh, in the port because it was full of COVID right. cases? Oh yeah, the, the first one. I don't remember. Was it the, the something princess? The, the... It was the Carnival Cruise. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know if it had a specific name. Right, but that would be excellent, and a car and a a cruise ship would be perfect. Absolutely. Yeah, like so. When you were describing, I was like, "Oh, cruise ship." That's the kind of the modern equivalent of like living to, like especially the deacon of like living to excess, getting mm -hmm. everything out of her resources and then just tossing it over the side. I so one of the things I want to keep is the notion of like even in this crazy post-apocalyptic world, the note like the idea of the haves and the have-nots, like the beggars outside of uh, the. I just lost the name of the town again. The town. The atoll. Thank you. The atoll, the atoll at the beginning, like the beggars, like, please let us in. I will give you my hair, anything. Mm -hmm. And, but I also think if you have a cruise ship kind of traveling around, like, and they're throwing things over the side, there can be like barnacle, barnacle people and like, like vulture people, like whatever scraps get thrown over the side, like that's what they're going after. I love that idea because as you mentioned earlier, uh, these people are really wasteful. They destroy things that could be useful. So I love the idea of like these scavenger bird type people who mm -hmm. just follow them around everywhere and pick through the remnants of the atolls that they destroy, of the boats that they blow up, yeah. and pick for scraps. Which is something in the Raider script, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. the In the Raider script, and I would love to see this realized on screen, the antagonists of the film are just a nameless troop of pirates but the pirates have a flotilla which is just a innumerable amount of boats held together by gangplanks and walkways and different barges and i would love to see a gigantic cruise ship as the central hub of the bad guy faction with so many things either hanging off the side or attached to it. And so the structure of the cruise ship is the center, but you've got these concentric rings of hangers-on, leeches to the bad guys that the bad guy can point to a bunch of people and say, you, you know, go and do my bidding and I'll feed you. And so you have this desperate group of people that worship this bad guy on this cruise ship and they will do anything for him, including being his shock troops. 
Which is why I think the bad guys for a Waterworld remake should not be the Smokers, but should be another faction that is mentioned in the Waterworld movie, specifically the Slavers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I think it is a much better motivation to attack atolls to kidnap people as opposed to just taking whatever isn't nailed down and then sinking the rest. I think it would be very interesting to see characters built up in Act 1 on the Atoll that you can then bring back in Act 3 on this slaver flotilla that we're talking about. And I also like the idea of, especially if they're trying, like, if the Deacon's whole modus operandi is, I want to exploit the world, I want the world's resources, like, people are a resource, you should absolutely have that. Mm Mm-hmm. And what better motivation for someone who traffics in human life than to take over dry land, whatever bit of it exists, and turn that into your central hub so that you have one specific location that you can exploit with all of the labor that you've accumulated? So I have a crazy pitch that's just a set deck kind of idea. Okay. But especially if we're going to be putting this on a cruise ship, a... Just a symbol of opulence and wastefulness that could be done in this cruise ship is for there to be the jacuzzi, the pool, or more probably more likely the jacuzzi. Mm-hmm. And because this guy is so like the the leader, the 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 everything else, he chlorinated the water. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's what the way the ancients used to do. Like, what do you? We can't drink the water. Of course not. This keeps it clean for me. (laughs) Oh, that's excellent. That's great. So, okay. So I think we're starting to make some changes. So let's talk about some of the things that I think we want to change. And so I agree with you that I think the atoll needs to exist. I think a lot of these things need to exist. But the atoll as it exists kind of feels ramshackle and put together out of like separate pieces of material. And mm-hmm. for me, I think it needs to look a lot more like that they are living in our trash. Mm. And I think a lot more things that they're using need to be plastic. Absolutely. that's just what's going to exist, however far into the future. Like, I don't think you should have a ceramic or a metal cup. I think they should be using, like, the bottom half of a milk jug just because it still exists. Yeah. I would love to see a lot of set dressing pieces that are plastic bottles that have been melted and molded and reshaped into tools. Uh, I want to see a lot of uh, strings and ropes made out of plastic bottles. I think we've all seen those razor blade tools where you drag the plastic bottle through the tool and it creates a very thin strand and then you weave that together with other strands and you create yourself plastic bottle rope. Uh, But I think that would be an excellent thing to have on offer in Helen's store on the Atoll. Because I don't think they could be using paper or fabric at all because they're living on the ocean. Mm -hmm. And that salt is just going to destroy everything that's not metal or plastic. And I think we need, like, even, like, I would put all of them in, like, chain link fence chain mail just because it's the (laughs) only kind of clothing that will, like, survive the salt air. Yeah. Plastic tarp material. Yeah. Very common. Yeah, I think all the classic things that we see on the news and in documentaries that we are putting out into the world have those represented. Have 
cast off fishing nets and straws and, you know, broken fish hooks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Although, if you want, you can have (laughs) more exotic materials amongst the slavers because maybe on the cruise ships you have spiders that happen to spin webs that you can turn into silk or maybe there's a you know a an entomologist got a lot of silkworms onto the cruise ship and so you can have more exotic materials by justifying it in world by saying okay these guys have silk because they have silkworms maybe the atollers have found and were able to cultivate some cotton plants um maybe they have a sheep or something like that uh although something that i really like about the raider script is that animals are like they exist but they're not common so the mariner in the raider script having a horse is a very special thing but it's not something that would be utterly impossible because some of the animals have just happened to survive on arcs or something like that. I, okay. So before I respond to that, let me ask you both, um, (laughs) how far in the future do you want this to be set? Because in the, in the paper script, it's a couple generations, Mm. but in the movie, it's hundreds of years. Right. So how far into the future do you think this should be? Julie, I'll, I'll ask you first. I think it needs to be at least a couple hundred years. I would say maybe three or 400 years needs to be far enough down the road that society has completely reshaped itself. That a lot of the things... When we were talking about the movie, uh, two minutes at a time, one of my biggest things is that as a society, we knew this was coming. So how? why didn't we prepare? Why didn't everybody move on to floating cities that governments and rich people built? Why didn't we all move into cruise ships so we need to be far enough down the road where yeah maybe we did that but that has faded because we couldn't keep it up Mm -hmm. you got to be far enough ahead in the future that all of the battery driven devices have died that however many years of fuel reserves that these ships have have run out and as many generations have passed that the oral tradition doesn't keep up And people who have written records are like, oh, these are interesting stories. I don't know if they're true or not, but they certainly are interesting. You can also build up off of that of, let's say there was a section of the population that was able to move onto cruise ships and everything else for a while. And those are, and everyone else had to like cobble things together and kind of like try to tie their life together into atolls as quickly as they could as the waters rose. And it was these big cruise ships that, of course, immediately depleted all the resources that then started pirating and taking what they could from all these other things that drove up. It's just further extrapolation of the powerful and the rich exploiting the poor and the weak. Yeah. And then that just continues for hundreds of years into the future until the couple of the one cup in this area cruise ship that still remains is the pirates, the slavers because they feed off of the bottom feeders or whatever. Although the idea of a bottom feeder, I guess, can't exist because they're not conscious of the concept of something of a bottom. <laughs> yeah. But that's true. Like, you get the idea. Yeah. So I think <laughs> at least 100 years 
for enough generations to pass away that what we know right now as fact passes into myth. That's the most important thing about the setting. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I would bridge the gap between 100 years and like 300, 400 years because we do want there to be some things that haven't completely worn away. Right. Like, I, I don't care how much you love National Geographic. If those things are in the ocean, they're not going to last a couple hundred years. Yes. Very, very true. There are lots of things in the original movie where it that just isn't possible. Like, yeah. the, vid- mean, the, the VHS that... tape? Really? Those last, like, a couple of years. Maybe. The best. I mean, the only thing that we can agree is that would last forever is the incredible talent of Miles Davis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the nice thing about CDs is that as long as the plastic remains intact, that data layer can remain protected for decades. Yeah. And if it's in like the original plastic wrapping, it's probably fine. Yeah. Nearly hermetically sealed with those uh, packaging types. But, like, I could totally see on a cruise ship or even in the atoll, like, them having salvaged something to generate power. Mm -hmm. Because some of the things that we don't really see in this movie is just, like, the concept of true blackness at night. And I think that's terrifying and really something, like, that's the sort of thing that could drive a person crazy. Yeah. We, We didn't see weather. It's just clear blue skies the whole movie. And, like, one rate, like, and it happens in the book, I think, not the book, the script, I think they have weather, or am I confusing it with something I watched on Friday? No, you're thinking of the script, which, um. That's right, there's a big old storm. Yeah, there's a very severe storm, and Enola is almost lost, and the Mariner has to go out of his way to save her, and then Enola convinces Helen to save the Mariner in kind. And so the three of them get out of this storm. It's it's arguably the climactic end to Act 1 before you move into Act 2 with them getting to the pirates and all of that stuff. But yeah, it's yeah. it's something that with them filming on the ocean, they wanted calm, really level seas. They did not want to have to try and do any of that filming stuff in actual weather out on the right. ocean. Which is crazy, because in a scene, the Mariner says, you can drink as much of this water as you like. It's going to rain tomorrow. And it never rains. We don't see it. We don't see it. (laughs) But I mean, like, it's also the sort of thing that you could see in, like, desert of just, like, the water. Let's talk about the water filtration systems here. (laughs) (laughs) Because that, like, I've I've asked a couple people of, what do you remember from the movie Waterworld? And, like, I keep expecting them to say gills, so I can say, you'll never believe what this script doesn't have. But they always say... Oh yeah, Kevin Costner drinking his own pee, and I'm like, that's the le- that's what you. Of course they have to. I say it happens in the first couple of minutes of the movie, so that's the first thing you see, and that's the thing that convinces most people to turn off the movie. So that's all they remember from it is and yet, Kevin Costner's go- pee stream filling up that cut, and then the camera tilts up to see his rear end, and then he pours it into the thing and drinks it. And yet, as of this recording, everyone's going to see Dune with no complaints. That's because Dune, it all happens in the suit. You don't have to watch it happen in front of your eyes. It's all in the suit. You don't have to think about them sucking moisture out of poop. And I will not have it. I think it's important Uh, that 
As you're watching Timothy Chalamet in Dune, remember that his character is literally pooping his pants. Yes. That is part this of the still important. suit. Yes, it is. So don't swoon over Timothy Chalamet in Dune. Other instances, <laughs> you're fine. But no, in Dune, Timothy Chalamet poops his pants. But like in this paper script, it's like uh, they, he has like a, a there's a liver hooked up in the filtration system. And it says people who know uh, anatomy will know that this liver's on backwards, and that's yep. why it's filtering out the pee. And I'm like, that's not how livers work. <laughs> that's not how livers work at all. If it's on backwards, that's gonna make it worse. <laughs> but like, oof, yeah. Although I think this was just me. But I definitely noticed, like, for the second time when they're when he's pouring in the pee from uh, Helen and Enola into the water filtration unit, it's the same shot, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Like, literally the same shot down to him tapping the spigot. I'm like, I went back and we watched it. I'm like, that's the same shot. <laughs> you son of a bitch. How dare you? <laughs> this movie's three hours long. We get it. Yep. Pulling <sighs> some room type shenanigans. Anyway, uh, okay, so what else? I, I sent this to you in the email ahead of time, and we're not getting to casting yet, but one of the things I did do for the Mariner is I did gender swap the Mariner. Mm-hmm. I, it, there's a lot of different, like, ways and, like, different, like, I, if you want to lean into, like, the burn the witch allegory, I think that it, you can make the Mariner female, and I think that there's some other, like, like, modern analogies of like oh that's a strong powerful woman can't have that out i say you know if you if you gender swap the mariner now you have a set of three women traveling together i have no problem with that and that is symbolic of you know three witches three fates all sorts of threes women come in threes yeah yes is that a thing it is yeah it is a thing it's definitely a thing (laughs) okay (laughs) especially witches And maybe a female mariner pulls out a a pair of blue jeans and they all, you know, get a chance to wear those blue jeans and have little vignette adventures where each of them, you know, gets to wear the pants as they travel around. As they travel around. Remember you made that joke when I get to later in my casting. So basically one of the things I also wanted to change on the boat was for the mariner, I... I wanted, in my version, her, and if we end up going with a, a dude, uh, he, I want it to be, okay, fine, you're here. You work or you go overboard. Mm-hmm. You work or you're bait, basically. And so, like, Enola, Helen, both of them have to start doing things on the ship to earn their keep. Because basically, in the movie as it is, they just hang out. And, and that makes no sense at all. At all. And that can be the threat. Like, we have whoever the Mariner is threatening them and saying, no, 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 you're going to be here. You earn your keep. You're going to be fishing the whole time. You're going to be on lookout. You are working the whole time. And then if there's time and we're that ahead of schedule, then you can have some food and water. Yeah. That's why I like the Mariner character in the Raider script, because he puts Enola to work. He ties her to a line and then raises her to the top of the mast and uses her as a lookout. And Helen, who is very injured all through that first act, is she's opposed to this idea of putting Enola to work, but 
the Mariner fires back with a lot of what you just said. Like, listen, this is my boat. It's not a democracy. It's a ship tatorship. No, no, that's not how I do it. It's a... <laughs> how do I do it? I... It's a dictatorship. Yeah, ex- yeah. That that that's probably what I yeah. What I meant. Oh no, you forgot your joke. I know. I had a really oh, good no. joke, and I completely forgot it. I'm sorry, well, in listeners. In a couple of days, when you remember, <laughs> message me, and I'll put it in the show notes. There we go. <laughs> the the other thing that bothered me is why does he eat the tomato seeds? He shouldn't eat the tomato seeds. He should replant them. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh, we never talked about that. Well. That was a very uh, interesting episode because it was two minutes of just him eating a tomato. Weren't our (laughs) guests for that Norm and Cassandra? No, that was another set of guests. And we spent our time talking about other interesting tomato facts. Oh, that's right. Okay, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. Here's how ketchup is made. Anyway, now he's (laughs) cut the tomato in half. Yep. Yeah, that's an excellent point about why didn't he plant the seeds. Like, he systematically eats this entire plant. And I get it. That's fun. That's good storytelling. And it's showing time passing. But, like, he has unlimited dirt. Go make more tomatoes. Mm -hmm. He literally asks for seeds. And then he eats the seeds. (laughs) Same thing with the limes. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning. It's it's so wasteful. Everyone, everyone in this post-apocalyptic wasteland is so wasteful. And they would die. They would die so fast. (laughs) Yeah, I really don't know how anybody has survived. It. We've seen them eat once this whole time. Mm-hmm. They eat once. And I'm assuming that that's one of the things that was cut. Like, literally, the Mariner dangles himself off the end of the ship, gets swallowed up by a giant sea monster, shoots his way out of it, and then, like, harvests it for its meat. Mm-hmm. That feels like it was an added scene for the extended cut. Oh, I'm pretty sure that's in the theatrical cut. The whole thing? Yeah. They spent a lot the, of money on that sea monster. They, they were did. not going to relegate that to the cutting room floor. I mean, to be fair, the the use of CGI in this movie is pretty limited. So, all right, I get it. <laughs> I say, you say that, but it's actually kind of funny. If you watch Waterworld, every single shot of the Ds has computer-generated water. And that is before Titanic did computer-generated water. Nothing about the D's is on the water. All of that was shot on dry land, and the ocean was added in digitally later. That's very impressive. Yeah, but it's very subtle, and that yeah. the best CGI is subtle. Well, I'm assuming they also had to like edit out the horizon. Well, yeah, they or- they had a lot of tarps draped around the the ship so that yeah. it would be easier to chroma key it. But I I just meant in general because I'm assuming they're not actually out in the middle of the ocean no they, no they, they were in a parking lot. they were in the mojave desert for some of it and yep. they were in parking yeah, lots yeah. for the other part of it you know that sort of thing cool cool, cool. <laughs> uh <laughs> i had another thing and i lost it uh cool what else do we need to do like talk about in terms of like our movie like assuming that they're escaping slavers and the mariners constantly threatening to sell helen and enola into slavery what other things do we need for our version for example, I think that the tattoo on Enola's back needs to be in, uh, I think the language is Nepali. I think it the the tattoo definitely needs to stay in that weird language. I think that's a big part of the mystery. I think Enola mm-hmm. needs to meet the Mariner a lot sooner than she did. I'm talking about when he's in the cage, that's when I want him and Enola to first meet. 
and I want them to spend a lot of time getting to know each other. And I want that to be the main highlight of the Mariner. I want the Mariner to begin the story. I don't want to spend time with anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody by the end of the story. I want the Mariner to be like, you know, you're okay, kid. You've done a lot for me. You've changed me. Right. Replace the time that we spend with Enola and her stupid drawing that I hate. Replace that with her spending time with the Mariner. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I have a pitch. Okay. So my pitch is we Enola meets the Mariner when he's in the cage, but I feel like something we can do that is like a really good visual component of like how the ta- like this the Atoll doesn't trust her and would immediately make the Mariner more endeared to her is we need to give her something physical that the uh, that the Atoll did to restrict her. Like literally if we give her a ball and chain, mm. something where if she went in the water, she would sink. Hmm. And that I way, I like it's... that. Yes, I like that. Uh, in the original movie, this whole thing about her not being able to swim—it makes no sense. And it's a—it's right. a—it's a plot point that matters. So let's make that a real thing. Let's give that a reason. Why can't she swim? Have they forbidden her to learn how to swim so that she can't swim away and betray them? Have they physically impeded her in some way? Let's make that make sense. Yeah. Yes. And I think with the ball and chain, like that's like all of a sudden we get it. Oh, how how did you never learn to swim? I would have sunk. Good point. Uh, yes. <laughs> and it just and it's a it's a good visual storytelling thing that I think we can use. And also, like immediately, the mariner would be like, I have to save the kid. The town doesn't trust the kid. Yeah. I also think that. When the Mariner arrives at the Atoll, I don't want to see him before this, but I want him to show up. He has dirt, but I also want him to have pages in his possession, and I want him to bring those pages to Helen at the trading barge, and I want her to look at these pages and say, oh, this lettering looks like what's on the tattoo, and then she hands that over to Gregor. And then when the slavers attack, Gregor is one of the people that's taken. And so he spends the whole movie off screen teaching himself how to read that lettering. So that way, when we reconnect with Gregor and the other Atoll people that we like in Act 3, that he has spent all that time working on it. And he can say, oh, good, you found me. Here is what the tattoo means, because I've spent all this time teaching myself how to read this language. I like the idea of making him more useful. Yeah. He's this bumbling grandfather character, this mad scientist type, who isn't the one who solves the intellectual problem in the end so much. And I think we do a better job of making it his intelligence that really helps to move things along. Yeah. Also, we're not going to deal with the Matt Berry knockoff in the movie, right? Like, we don't need or care about him. No. He's just there. You guys hired me for security, and I'm just going to be here. We don't know who you are. Good. Yeah, if you're going to if you're going to bring him in, uh, give him more purpose. Give him yeah. more lines. Give him a relationship. Maybe he wants to have a relationship with Helen, and Helen doesn't want to have a relationship with him. Like, give him something to do if you're going to bring him in. You know, I like I mean, that yeah. as a justification for the enforcer being there. Uh, because he doesn't do a whole lot 
to he doesn't lead the defense right he doesn't delete lead the defense of the atoll during the attack and so it would be nice if in this version maybe he is he is on the front lines and he gets a little fight scene between him and uh i'm just gonna keep calling this second in command of the bad guy the nord because that's what he's called in the original script but maybe you have to avoid the nord yeah Mm. maybe the enforcer and the nord get a little bit of a fight and the nord beats the enforcer and that's why he's captured alongside Gregor and, you know, anybody else we invent for this movie. But I like the idea of the Enforcer and Helen having this sort of unrequited relationship. Maybe they flirt back and forth, but they know that because she runs the store and has to take care of Enola, and he knows that she can never have children of her own, and so he will never have a son, a child that is truly his, and so people are always encouraging him to hook up with other people on the atoll, but he only has eyes for Helen. You could have a little side plot. So that way at the end of the movie, when the Mariner sails away, we have this pre-existing character that we know Helen can start her life with on dry land. That's what I imagined for him anyways, with the movie, because he in no way earns his place in the finale of that movie. He just (laughs) shows up. He's yeah. just there, no, he, and we're all like, "He, lit- who are you? Why are you here?" He doesn't even have a name. He, no, he doesn't. He have literally a name. does nothing the whole movie. The like the two things he does is he goes, "I'm sorry," as he like lowers the mariner <laughs> into the into the uh, 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 mulch goo. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the second thing he does is at the end of the movie, he goes to Helen and go, "Maybe you should tie off that rope." And she goes, "Oh, right, a thing to do." As the Mariner is like jumping, like bungee jumping off the side of the hot air balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and she literally has to Homer Simpson tie off the, the monorail M before the rope runs out. Yeah. Yep. And all I know is that of all of the uh, smokers we meet, we do call the big one bitey. <laughs> yeah. That'd be fun. While we're on the but topic yeah, like- of relationships. The the sexual relationship that Helen and the Mariner share. Should Gross. that Oh, take it out. Come over? Yeah, absolutely yeah. Okay. should not be there. Yeah. Okay, good. That's I didn't want it to be there at all. I in fact don't want any. I huh. I'm I'm very if torn. We, if we must, we can have it with this enforcer guy. Right. Helen. But yeah. if he's not gonna be there, he's the only other love interest that I think would be appropriate for Helen. But if he's not gonna be there, then nothing. No love interest, no sexual tension, nothing. Yeah. And because... take out the scene with the drifter. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely not. That, yeah. Yeah. That's why I want the Mariner to already have pages when he shows up. That yeah, way yeah, we yeah. don't have to justify that scene with pages talk. Oh, that was no. bad. Yeah. Was Get bad. rid of it. When we, when we recorded those episodes of the podcast, I quit. I, I rage quit. There's one episode that's like 10 minutes long because I was like, I can't talk about this anymore. I'm done. Mm-hmm. It was just did the so right bad. Yeah. It's so bad. And I'm, I don't think this movie needs any sort of sexual plot line whatsoever. I mean, this movie's so long is I don't think it needs more things. No. no. And that was just an extra thing. Like there's the, the, the drifter at the beginning that the like the that was that robbed the limes from the Mariner. I kind of like it. It shows that, like, he does a reverse save the cat where he kills, where he basically makes that guy get super dead. Mm-hmm. 
But like I we also don't need that. And yeah, we we get it. It's it's like I said, the Mariner is the Han Solo type. In order for you to enjoy the first Star Wars movie, you do not need to watch Solo a Star Wars story as a lead up. What makes Han Solo cool is that you don't know a lot about him. Yeah. He shows up in the bar, he negotiates the thing, and then he shoots Greedo. And then they leave. And you're thinking, can you trust this guy? You don't know. Is there air? So I love the idea of there being a little bit of mystery. Like, what is the caliber of person that Helen and Enola have signed in on? Sure, Enola might feel a little comfortable with this guy and you know, connect with him over a shared um, freak label from the people around them. But Helen doesn't know that. So there's tension there. Good narrative tension. So with that in mind, if we're not going to start with the Mariner, I have a pitch for the first scene of the movie. And that's the monthly or yearly hearing to decide if they're going to keep Enola for another month. Hmm. Because at this point, she's getting so big, she's outgrown her latest ankle restraint, and they need to put a new one on her. And instead of wasting good metal to put another ankle restraint on this little girl, we could also just throw her off again. And everyone's like, no, yes, no, yes. And then uh, we'll table this to later. Someone just showed up, and it's the Mariner. Yeah. And he's got dirt. Oh, my God. Forget everything we were talking about. I really like the idea of this consistent tension. But in an organized way, like they have a periodic hearing and in between those periodic hearings, Helen and Enola maybe don't need to worry so much. Like, okay, we're good until a year from now. We're good for another six months. They're not going to cast us off. Yeah. I, I don't actually like the idea of them doing a yearly or monthly vote to keep Enola. I think Helen trading her reproductive rights to adopt Enola is enough for me. Okay. Um, I like the way that the script opens up the movie where one of the first things you see is Enola and she's, you know, hanging off the side of one of these structures on the atoll and she's scraping barnacles off of the structure to collect them for food. And so you see this little girl and you can have her like in a tracking shot with her collecting barnacles. She's uh, you could show whatever sort of restraint punishment that you're talking about in these shots. And then her carrying these barnacles around the atoll until she gets to the houseboat that her and Helen occupy. And so you have an opportunity to explore the space that they're living in. You could see the reactions of the atollers around her, how they look at her, how she has to sort of walk on eggshells around them. Maybe one of them trips her or shoves her just to really highlight that she's not welcome, even though she is a normal um, occupant of this atoll. I think that's fair. I think I agree with you. I think you make a good point, and I think you're right. Yeah. Plus, you can have Enola arrive back at the at the trading barge where Helen is, and maybe then you can get a hint of, oh, here's Helen and the Enforcer, and he's trying to flirt with her, and she's, like, you know, blushing and, you know, put it, putting him off or something like that. And maybe the outsider in that first scene is the Nord. 
Like, he's already there. He's already schmoozing and gathering information. Especially if you set it up where the Nord is going to be, like, kind of set up as this, like, charismatic person who's there. And we think he's going to be, like, our hero. And then this grimy, gross person shows up. And it's just like, oh, no. Whatever this person's offering, we don't want it. And they all of a sudden bring out a bucket of dirt. And you're like, what? Yeah. You could have... Anola get to the trading barge with her little basket of barnacles and one of the other atollers like sticks his foot out from the table and trips Anola and as she goes to pick up all of her barnacles guess who helps her it's the Nord and he sees the tattoo on her back and he's like oh I've seen it I've saw it now can't unsee it good all right I like that yeah no I agree with you I I I, I think that works all right I'm happy with that we should probably talk about casting, right? Yeah, let's get into casting. Yes. I'm All right. very glad that you're here to talk about casting, because as I was looking at the different roles for this movie, I realized that I don't really know the names of people in Hollywood anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very interested to hear who you've got in mind for these roles. Well, I'm happy to I'm happy to start since, as I said, I gender swapped my, my Mariner, and with that in mind, like I wanted like a tough woman who hasn't necessarily had a lead role in anything, and is kind of like always like the number two, the enforcer, that sort of thing. And I think she deserves to be like the lead or the Han Solo in her own movie. And I think for someone who's been in Hunger Games and uh, one of the Star Wars is and Game of Thrones. It's time for Gwendolyn Christie mm. to be Ooh. someone big and intimidating. It's an excellent idea. And especially like if you're going to be living on your own in the middle of the ocean and like have gills or something, like you're going to have to learn to fight and be big and like defend yourself. And Gwendolyn Christie can do that, and she's awesome. And she can both be scary and uh, act better than Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'll get no argument with me on that regard. Yes. I think the main leads, the people who are right up front, need to be phenomenal actors. They need to outshine yeah. and outperform the secondary characters, mm -hmm. which is not the case in the original movie. Yeah. Secondary no. characters outperform, well, Kevin Costner. Well, because the movie as it exists now is so dependent on everyone's just going to be dazzled by the craziness of this world. Like, it's a movie about the world. I mean, it's literally called Waterworld. <laughs> and also, the fact that they say Waterworld in the movie, they should never do that. Like, there's no gifts in Waterworld. Don't do that. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but, like, like, at the end of the day, what this should be is it should be a character piece. Like, mm -hmm. the world is interesting and cool, but we don't watch the original Star Wars because it's an interesting world. That's what's given it its longevity. But the, what made it an immediate hit was the interesting characters in the movie. Right. The world is nothing if you don't have characters to inhabit them. Yeah. Then it's just John Carter of Mars or name any other failed sci-fi movie yeah. that you've got. They've all got interesting worlds. I mean, freaking Ethereum and the City of a Thousand Planets... It's an amazing world, but the characters are nothing. Yeah, they did not do a good job casting. Oh, what was it? it was um one of them was Cara Delevingne, and the other one was uh, Dahan Dane Dahan. Dane Dahan, yeah. Dane Dahan, good job. Yeah, yeah. I had a I, good set of eyebrows I on both of them. 
Yeah. I, well, because that was the crazy thing. Like, they looked like siblings when yeah. they're supposed to be love interests. I mean, yeah. the other thing is that, like, I... Cara Delevingne is, like... She's a better actress than than the projects she's been given. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think she needs the right thing to really show what she's capable of. Yeah. Yeah. Since you have gender swapped the Mariner, another person came to mind uh, for that part is Gina Torres. Mm. Interesting. Another person who is very self-assured, very uh, capable, and is very excellent at putting that forward. And also capable of emotionally shutting people out. I think if this were... When did Firefly come out? 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah, something like that. I think if it were 15, 20 years ago, I would 100% agree with you. She's 52 now. Ooh, and I That's true. And, I mean, to be fair, I don't know how old Gwendolyn Christie is, so watch oh, me. She's at least in words. her 40s, is my guess. I don't know... I think she's nine she's years 42 so she's oh, okay yeah so uh, Gwendolyn Christie is 42 yeah so uh, 10 years younger so I don't think that makes a huge difference and especially if you're going to be in a water world where the entire ocean is going to age you way faster than everything else I think Gina Torres is actually a good choice I don't know I'm open to I'll it say, yeah I, I would like to make an argument for keeping the Mariner as a male role um, because when I think of the Mariner I think I want someone that is rather athletic looking, maybe a bit more on the lean side, definitely brooding. And the character or the actor that comes to mind, I'm not saying I definitely want him in the role, but I picture Adam Driver as someone who can look a little bit more alien in his portrayal. Uh, Someone who can stand there and... Maybe if he, like, haunches a little bit, he can project this otherworldly type of silhouette and say, I'm a mutant. I am not human. I am something else. Stay away from me with just a look. I think between the different projects that he's done, he has a lot of rage that he can tap into to intimidate people. And so I like him in the role of the Mariner because it presents a nut for a Nola to crack. I like the idea that we have kind of hinted towards earlier that the Mariner needs to be not an attractive person. Uh, So, which can be sometimes hard to find in Hollywood. Hollywood actors tend to be attractive people. So I think someone like an Adam Driver type, someone like a Gwendolyn Christie type, they can be made to look less attractive. Mm -hmm. But then you get someone like Gina Torres what on earth can you do to her face to make it less beautiful? Like nothing. <laughs> She's always going to be beautiful. We need I like someone. That you're, you're now fighting against your own argument. <laughs> I'll t- tell you what, Rick, I will make you a deal. If we have our Mariner be Gwendolyn Christie, I didn't cast this rule, but we can make this enforcer guy who's supposed to have the love interest with Helen. We make that Adam Driver. Mm, I, I'd have to refuse because I have a different physical archetype in mind for the enforcer and we can get to him if you cast matt barry i'm gonna be so mad (laughs) but i'll have to i will have to say yes (laughs) Um, okay well because the mariner kind of ties everything together let's come back to the mariner let's talk about helen okay who did you have for helen so when i envision a recast for helen i want someone 
that is on the younger side between I'd say like a 25 to 40 range. Um, I want her to have the compassion and slight naivete of youth, but also the ingenuity and drive to persist that comes along with someone who isn't world wearied like the Mariner would be. And so in my mind, I pictured Zoe Saldana, that type of woman that, you know, she doesn't look older um, and she can inhabit a lot of different types of people. Uh, she was in, she was in Avatar. She was in the Guardians movies. Um, I can't think of any of the other ones off my head, but I think she, I, she strikes me as someone who could walk that line between all of this is, is new, but I'm going to deal with it. That's good. I, I definitely considered her for the role, but uh, I think that is an interesting choice. Julia, who do you have or, or who are you thinking for Helen? Okay, I this is going to sound like just really, really random. Um, I was thinking about, I spent all afternoon thinking about the casting and how white the original movie is, which is, you know, yes. very indicative of its time. And, you know, only now are we starting to realize, hey, white people make up a very small percentage of this world. Let's make movies about other people. Uh, and especially in the setting where the entire world is gone. So you should have people from all over the world in this movie because they're all the victims, the entire world. So I wanted to choose somebody of a nationality just different than what we've seen so far. Um, Good. I like where your head's okay. at. Okay. And I really not sure how this that's is going to go so, over. I'm a little nervous of saying. Well, because we, well, let, let me tell you ahead of time. Like, that's the sort of thing I try to do for all these shows. Like, I know that this, this is kind of the first time we're meeting, but like, that is one of the big pushes I try to make with this podcast. We're recasting. If we end up with a cast that's all white, we've made a mistake. <laughs> and yes, like, especially because so many of the movies that we are working on are all white that's one of the very first things we need to change. So that's why I also like try to get a more diverse cast. So by all means, yep. whatever you're about to say, I support you. <laughs> you're going to laugh when you hear my choice and I will back it up, but I'm sorry. Go Okay. Ali Wong. She's uh, a oh. comedian. Um, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't envision her playing Helen comedically. I envision Helen needing to have a reserve of maybe dark and sarcastic humor to get her through all of the crap that she's been through and also dealing with a preteen because, ew, they're gross. <laughs> uh, so I think she can tap into that skill that she has of being funny. But Ali Wong can also be really serious and she can be tough. Yes. And I like that I she's small. She's just she's short and little. And that just kind of accentuates that she has to use her wits and her skills and her ingenuity to fight through this world. Yes. So, Julia, I want you to take every argument that you just made, everything you just said about your casting for Helen, and imagine that I now said the exact same thing. <laughs> but my choice is America Ferreira. Oh, yeah. You know, from Superstore and Ugly Betty. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's called Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Yeah. <laughs> think we're familiar <laughs> and so that's why i laughed and you were making the passing a pair of jeans around uh joke but like <laughs> honestly for all the same things like if you're gonna survive in a post-apocalyptic hellscape there's going to be an like you gotta have an element of dark humor but you also gotta be able to like 
get stuff done. But it's also like, we're human beings. We're going to find ways to laugh, something to make us smile. That's just what humanity is. And I think America Ferreira is going to be really good. And she's not going to be kind of like the waif that we have of Helen in the first movie. It's like, I think that like you put a weapon in her hands, she can be tough and like take people down. Mm. And I, she's also not that tall, but I don't think she needs to be. And I, I think that she would be able to do these kinds of different roles. And so I thought that she'd be fun and compelling and she has enough charisma to make us like her. Cause remember her superpower needs to be charisma in this movie. Right. Um, an alternative to Zoe Saldana, who I mentioned, I just realized uh, someone else who would probably be pretty good from the Birds of Prey movie, also from Lovecraft Country, oh. uh, Journey Smollett yeah. would probably be really yeah. good. Yeah. Here's the thing. I would absolutely 100% go with Journey Smollett if I literally didn't cast her in the last episode. Ah! <laughs> Can't throw too much work so, away. Right. Well... So here's the thing. So the last movie I remade, which people who are now listening to this will know this already, but the last movie I remade before this one was Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, okay. And it's hard for me to do two post-apocalyptic movies, and especially when I was getting to writer and director. I was like, how do I not use the same people? Uh, to, and, but I literally cast Journey Smollett. I recorded on Friday three days ago. <laughs> I love Journey Smollett. I think that is an excellent, excellent choice. However, I just used her. Yeah. So I'm going to push us towards America Ferrera for this one. Okay. All right. I don't know, because I like her and because I think she has a little bit more performance experience than Ali Wong, who I think of more as a stand-up, but I know she's done more acting things. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I loved your argument, Julia. That's why I stole it. <laughs> I think it's a good argument for, well, many, many different actresses. Absolutely can fit yes. into that role. And I think America Ferrera is absolutely one of them. Yeah. So that brings me to the only character that I really, I had a hard time recasting because this is very difficult to Google without ending up on a list. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Did, I did not even try it. Yeah. My only I, specification I, for Enola is that we need to have a girl between the ages of eight to 12 who is either of Southwest Chinese or Northern Indian descent or just someone who is straight up Nepalese. A hundred percent agree with everything you said. Someone from that area of the world. Yep. I mean, yes. no shade on Tina Majorino, but later on in life, she played perfectly a girl from Idaho, because that is yeah. just who Tina Majorino is. You cannot put her under a tanning bed for a couple hours for a few days and pass her off as someone being natively from the Himalayas. That doesn't work. Right. You, you can't have a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid as, like, your, your refugee. Yeah. And it was especially important to me that, like, because they kept asking in the movie as it exists, like, was oh, this your daughter? No. We look alike, but no. And it's like, it should be kind of obvious that they're adopted, right? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I agree. Between the ages of 8 and 12, I... Ideally under 12, but yes. Uh, and yes, I, I agree Yeah, with it's you. like Julia said, you want like prepubescent, still a child, but old enough to be able to not be a burden. Yes. I think the important thing is we both agree with Julia. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, good. Okay. So then that brings us to Deacon. Uh, Julia, why don't you get us started for Deacon? 
Oh, um, okay. I, oh, I do not have anyone specific for this. I think that uh, a comedian would be a great fit. Somebody who can switch back and forth between comedic and drama, though. Not a, a solely comedic actor. That type of actor is actually, I think, becoming more common nowadays, where more and more of our drama adventures are funny as well. So we get to see more actors being able to tell a joke. I think that's the type that we need. I agree with that. I agree with everything you just said. So I'm going to take everything you just said and steal it, but for me. Okay. But seriously, though, I do agree with you. I think that that's important. One of the other things I thought was that Unlike some of the other roles in this movie, I thought that it was important for the deacon to be slightly older than a lot of the other people in this. Especially because in a world where it's difficult to get, reach old age, and not necessarily old age, like my cast is like decidedly middle-aged, but like at someone, like he leads a cruise ship full of people. Like that doesn't happen overnight. Like you got to build up to that and like earn trust for years and years. Right. There's a reason all of our politicians are old. It's because it yeah, takes like, years to get to those positions. Yes. I a hundred percent agree. And, and that's why politics is deeply broken. But the important thing is I wanted someone who kind of had that dramatic, but also kind of the action. And also just like someone who is himself deeply charismatic and it's like a battle of charisma between helen and the deacon um this is a guy who has a deep background in theater which for the deacon got to project you got to lead people and, and reach everybody throughout the house but he also is in he was in boogie nights he's in frida and most people know him from spider-man 2 i'm talking of course about alfred molina okay all right i thought you were gonna go in a different angle with the spider-man thing you thought I was going to say Willem Dafoe? I thought you were going to say Willem Dafoe. No, I want Alfred Molina. <laughs> yeah. I think I would have been on board with Willem Dafoe as well. Uh, but Alfred Molina, um, I like that. I think that he's got a face that can reach a crowd. He can. Well, he, and I also like like what I was saying. What we said earlier is like go crazy and then be deadly serious and talk about something and keep a man in an oil hole. Mm-hmm. But but Rick, who did you have for the Deacon? So. I wasn't quite sure who I would want to put in the role, um, so I did another this this actor's name type. Because when I think of the Deacon, I think of someone who is a bit world-weary because he seems to have seen it all, but he's also commanding and charismatic. And I'm also trying to think, if we are making the bad guys in this movie the slavers, I feel like it's historically accurate to cast a white guy as a slaver. And so I thought of someone who is a Michael Rooker type, because if you think of Michael (laughs) Rooker in the Guardians movies, or um, let me pull up his IMDb real quick so that I can list off a couple of other options for Michael Rooker, other than (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, I mean, that's certainly what I know him from, but Michael Rooker's a good pick. um, He's in the new Suicide Squad movie. Yeah, uh, he's in there for a little bit. He's... um, what else? Oh, he was in um, the he was in the Walking Dead as Merle for a couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Just a guy who the look of him can be very intimidating, but at the same time he'd be able to to step back and soften up a bit around his lieutenants. I'm thinking of 
the part at the end of Waterworld where the deacon's like, yes, row my minions, and they all run to their oars, and then he turns around to talk to his underlings, and he's like, I got no clue where we're going, but don't let them know that, because we're just gonna, they'll row until I tell them to stop rowing. That sort yeah, of Yeah, that'll buy me a month. Exactly. I, I think you're right. I think Michael Rooker is the right choice, and I think... I, I, so I think you're right. Let's go with Michael Rooker. I think that's the correct yeah. way to do it. And like, this. it doesn't have to be him specifically. It's just that type of guy. <laughs> I think him specifically is a great choice. I'm just yeah. imagining Michael Rooker's voice delivering Deacon lines, and it works. Yeah. Like, you yeah, can imagine him making up scripture. Yes. And pre- de- declaring it as if it's gospel already. Right. That sort of thing. Believing in the patron saint of Captain Joe. Exactly. I, yeah, I, I think that's a good pull. Excellent choice. That brings us to Nord. Ah, yes. Who I wrote down as just like generic lieutenant. Um, yeah. Nord, so, like I said, needs to be the Mariner's mirror image. Everything that the yeah. Mariner is not, the Nord needs to embody. And I think... We would have to rename the character because if you call him Nord, the assumption is that he is of Nordic descent. Um, in which yeah, case, well, I also didn't know that was his name. Yeah. I just wrote down Lieutenant. No, his his name is specifically Nord, and he is blonde hair, blue eyed. Uh, so if you want to stick with blonde hair, blue eyed, calling him Nord, you just need someone who's blonde and charismatic. But if you take away Nord and give him a different name, you can take away that blonde thing and just go with charisma. Which, no, I cast a Japanese guy. It really opens um, it up. <laughs> so the the guy that I cast, uh, I I most recently saw him. He played uh, Renji in the new Netflix movie Kate. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also in Thor Ragnarok, and he's been in a bunch of Japanese movies, like a bunch. Uh, the, I'm gonna I'm gonna mispronounce this guy's name. Um, Tadanobu Asano. Okay. T-A-D-A-N-O-B-U, and then Asano is A-S-A-N-O. And for the same thing that Julia was saying earlier of, I mean, you've got a a potential uh, white mariner and a white deacon. I don't want any more white people. Yeah. So what about a different Asian actor who is very physically in fit, incredibly charismatic his smile lights up the room it's incredibly hard to not feel good around this guy and he was also the main character of shang chi and the legend of the ten rings talking about simu lu because <laughs> if that guy comes to your front door and you know he asks to come in are you going to tell him to leave that's true that's a good point right he needs to be charismatic and smooth but also intimidating and violent when needed. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of this remake is I want the main conflict to be between Mariner and Nord. I want them yeah. to have the long-standing rivalry. Yes, the Deacon is there as the boss of the bad guys, and he is the one that ultimately needs to be defeated. But in my mind, to go back to the Star Wars analogy... Deacon, he can be the Emperor, but the Nord needs to be Darth Vader. The original Waterworld movie does a terrible job of resolving the soft rivalry between Mariner and Nord. It's very dumb. 
Right, they set it up, and then there's no payoff. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't kill him with a glass of water is the worst, like, it's such a missed opportunity. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, that's the thing they keep saying throughout the movie. Like, when he's sailing away and leaving the Mariner in the in the uh, sea jail, uh, he's, like, doing the gesture, and it took me a while to realize, oh, yeah, like, uh, the, dr- the drink of water. Should have bought him a drink of water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like that's the joke that keeps making so like literally you kill him with a drink of water and ideally from this cruise ship a drink of chlorinated water yeah Ooh. so when when i was thinking about the nord i was looking for an idris elba type i wanted somebody charismatic somebody good looking but frankly idris elba is too old yeah uh so yes. i'm look. i was looking for a younger version and i found him Ooh. david ajala Okay. Um, I know him from very recently from the third season of Star Trek Discovery. He was in the first episode. I haven't finished the season yet, so I don't know if he's in more episodes, but he was in the first episode. And he is a beautiful, beautiful black man (laughs) that can steal the show aesthetically, which is what they I feel like that's what they tried to do with the Nord. I think I feel like they tried to make him the most beautiful man in the movie and they just they just didn't make it there. But that's what they wanted. A person with blonde hair and blue eyes, you can't be more attractive than that. Right. It is impossible. Right. I definitely feel like that's what they were going for. So let's give, you know, the prime lieutenant. Obviously, he can't be called the Nord. Call him, you know, something else. Anything else. Yeah. Ooh. Let's make him the most beautiful person in the movie. So... I love when people bring in suggestions of people I've never heard of before, and I don't know who this guy is, but that's great. My vote would be to go with I've David literally Ajala. seen him in one thing. One one-hour show. I mean, we've technically also seen him. He had a small role in Fast and Furious 6, where he played a character named Ivory. Uh, he was also really? a bounty hunter in The Dark him? Knight. Uh, I, I say that's what we name him in the new Waterworld. Absolutely Let's not. <laughs> no. That is terrible. Might as well just call him the Nord. Oh my goodness. It's like, I'd be, but, oh man. Like, there's something where it's like, I'm trying to remember uh, what the property is where there's just a character called the Swede. Oh. Uh, oh my goodness. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I actually thought about that today. It doesn't matter. Either way, I think we should go with David Ajala. I mean, you might be thinking of Umbrella Academy. No. Maybe. No. I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Uh, let's move on to... <laughs> let's move on to Old Gregor. Yes. Old oh, Gregor. Old Gregor, Gregor was tough. But I'm going to have a start with Julia this time. Oh, no, no, no. Why don't you start? Because I need inspiration. Yeah. Okay. So I went... I took a left turn on this one. Um, so for my Old Gregor, the way you all, always cast these people is... Uh, you always cast, like, a, a crazy old man and give him an interesting accent. And I'm like, I don't need another old white man in big glasses. What I want is I want to steal those Trelawney glasses, which I'm going to call them. And I want to put them (laughs) on someone who can do, like, interesting character portrayals and just, like, be absolutely crazy with occasional moments of sanity. And so I wanted to go with Alfre Woodard, who you will know. She's in 12 Years a Slave. She's in Annabelle. Mm. She's in the Captain America movies or something. She's... Like, I saw her uh, this past year in a movie called Down in the Delta. Alfre Woodard. A-L-F-R-E Woodard. Mm. 
And I'm thinking, like, just imagine her with her big eyes, but in those Trelawney glasses that make her eyes huge. And it's, like, that same sort of thing that you normally see, just, like, crazy old man in a bunker. But, mm-hmm. like, her portraying it. Because it's a, it's a role that, like, older black women don't normally get to play. And I'm like, why not? Crazy scientist lady is, just works just as well as crazy scientist guy. So Yeah, I, yeah absolutely. So I also gender-swapped old Gregor. Okay. I like her. I'm trying to... I. So I don't know if this works as inspiration because I took such a left, uh, such a left turn. Yeah. But... I was thinking a little bit... I'm, I'm not sure I'm pleased with where my thoughts took me. Of a type, like changing up the type. We need somebody who is intellectually minded. But other than that, it can be anybody. So we could go younger. Like and, have them be a savant? I think savant might be a strong word. Or bookish? Perhaps bookish. Because really all we need Gregor to do is to invent the contraption. Do, I mean, do we even really need him to invent the contraption, the hot air balloons? No, I think so if, you want... if we have them kidnapped by slavers, he doesn't need the airship. Right. Yeah. So you want it to be uh, Wade from Kim Bossible? Yeah. <laughs> all we need Gregor to do is to translate the the words. And to do that, all he has to do, he, she, is to steady up on some found materials, maybe collaborate with some other prisoners on the ship, maybe, you know, gather up some knowledge from other people around, from other parts of the world. That's all we need Gregor to do. So you could do any age, any gender, any nationality. You could do anything. That's true. I don't disagree. Who do you have in mind? Oh, geez. Well, do you want to come back to you again? Rick, it's, yes. uh, maybe you have someone. And again, you, if you don't have someone, you can be the deciding factor. Like when I mean, Rick presents someone, Julia, you could be the one who casts the vote. If you don't have someone and both of us do, you get to choose. I mean, I, I was considering one name, but then another name popped into my head. So I want to put them forward. And I feel like he'd be playing a bit against type. But what do you think of Danny Trejo <laughs> as Gregor? So oh. here's the unfortunate thing. I've seen him play that before. So, um, let's see. So, Does he play that role in Spy Kids? That is correct. Okay. That's what. That's where <laughs> I'm getting it from. Then. I just imagine, you know, in the story, Gregor is the one who maintains the generator on the atoll. And so he has this tower. And so you follow Enola into the tower and it's dark and shady. And then you have this sunlight shaft of sunlight coming through the wall and it illuminates this guy, this big guy covered in tattoos. You turn around, it's Danny Trejo and he's got like a pinwheel generator that he's attached to a baseball cap or something like that. And it's just him tinkering. And it's that same spy kids energy. (laughs) (laughs) I really like the visual um, that you are both putting forward is that you have somebody who you would not typically see physically in that role yeah um and i'm thinking of firefly again where you've got what's her face being the mechanic yeah Yeah. kaylee kaylee uh where physically if you line them all up and picked out tell them to pick out the mechanic you wouldn't pick her but she's a brilliant mechanic Mm -hmm. uh for that reason i think alfrey woodard is excellent for that okay but i think she's a lot more in line uh, and you might be able to also like play up a 
mentor mentee type relationship because they don't do a really good job of highlighting exactly why Helen and Gregor are such good friends. It just seems like Gregor is the only one in the atoll who really accepts them. So maybe it is that Gregor in this remake or um, what, what's a, what's a Gregor is a last name, isn't it? I always, I always thought it was was like a short for Gregory or something like that. I mean, Ma- I, have names a crazy, will mean nothing. I have a crazy story about when I was so, in college. Someone got assigned to be like an incoming freshman staying with the person who's a student. And this person's name was Gareth. And then it turned out to be a woman. And everyone was very surprised. Hmm. And then Gareth? she said she blamed her mother. Yep. That's fair. Yep. Yeah. It's but very like, fair. Maybe one of the reasons that Gregor in the remake um, is so sympathetic to uh, Helen in the remake is because... You know, maybe she has a history of like seeing people sent out because maybe one of her inventions is what people use to get rid of unwanted folks. Maybe Gregor is the one who fashioned whatever contraption you're talking about attaching to Enola and she feels bad about that. And so she tries to make up for it by accepting Helen and Enola into her workshop whenever they have free that. time. That's oh, I like that. Yes. That's I like the accentuating the the tinkering um inventive nature of Gregor. It, in the movie he's just so bumbling. Yeah. I mean, and he, he's he got also this was... he's got this cool thing that he built. Yeah. But we don't actually like get to connect his mind to that machine. He was also clearly a holdover from the script. Like Cornelius from the script turned into old Gregor. Was like, this is such a great character. Let's meet him earlier. <laughs> and the the yeah, version that's... of Cornelius of the, in the script is it's this bumbling old man who says he knows how to do everything, but doesn't know how to do anything. And then he flies a plane for some reason. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Um, so we don't. I don't have someone for this role, so I, it's just going to be have to be based off of you two. So, because I did not recast this enforcer, who do you two think that it should be? Because Rick, it uh, sounded like you had someone for this. I want a Jason Momoa type. I want some guy that is chosen as the protector of the atoll because of his sheer size. And I want, and I, and I like the idea of someone like Jason Momoa who's really good at playing background characters. Don't put him in the spotlight. Just have him contribute to scenes, show up every once in a while, and people are like, "You, you look really tough and intimidating. You're going to be our enforcer." I mean, they cast this man as Conan just because of how he looks, not because of his acting ability. And so <laughs> you could vision him up on the gate, like vetting people as they come in i so i haven't he's, seen dune but it sounds like that's kind of what his role is going to be in dune because he's Duncan yes idaho. absolutely yeah, yeah although duncan idaho is capable well sure he gets like, to, he gets yeah. to become yeah. a zombie <laughs> who doesn't want to see zombie jason momoa i mean point at point of order it's, it's not a zombie. he's a gola he's a he's created by the tlaxians to uh to be like a body you know i don't need to get into the weeds of Wow, Doom yeah. Work. And I'm talking sequels. Yeah, I definitely don't. And yeah. I'm talking sequels yeah. where it gets even more in the weeds. I uh, know Denis Villeneuve has talked about wanting to do Dune, uh, Messiah of Dune, but <laughs> we, he's got to make part two before he can get to that. Yeah, yep. seriously. I'm really on board with Jason Momoa being 
the Enforcer. Great. Jason Momoa has a gentleness about him mm-hmm. that if we are going to put him in a love interest position with Helen, which I think would be the only reason to actually keep him. <laughs> I like that pairing. Yeah. Who'd we put as Helen? America Ferreira. Oh, that's really brown. I mean, that's not a, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> we're trying to mix things up. But it's not like they're, they're not the same brown, so... <laughs> We're not just making everybody the same. Are you, are you a little worried that we're falling into the whole, you know. Overcorrecting? Um, no, uh, the uh, no. Like, like meets like kind of thing. That trope of, oh, well, we have yeah. two black people in this. Therefore, they have to be Oh, they interest. must fall in love. Yeah. yeah no, we, can't, I, we have two brown people. They must fall in I love. I think we're yeah. going to have multiple brown people. Um, I think, yeah. And I think that's okay because, well, because two brown people can fall in love if they want to. And they're also not the same kind of brown. That's fine. Just keep just keep digging. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Totally gonna. This is the hill I'm going to die on. Uh, I have one more role that I wanted to cast. But before we get to that, uh, and that is the pilot, because mm-hmm. uh, obviously you have to recast, like, you have to have another place for the next Jack Black. Um, but is there any other role that we need to cast before we get to writer-director that I'm mm. forgetting or just intentionally ignoring because there were so many? I'm perfectly happy to do pilot, go back to Mariner, and then get into writer-director. Yeah, there are certainly other characters that are very important to consider um, once you get back to the, um, in this instance, slaver operation. Uh, there's the ledger guy who's got to keep track of the books. There's the doctor who ke- tra- keeps everybody healthy. But I think those are minor enough roles that we don't need to spend a lot of time yeah. casting them specifically. And I think we'll be fine without it. There's the hydraholic, which I guess is cool and interesting, but it's like, I agree. Yeah. Um, so then let's talk about the pilot. Did either of you have anyone for the pilot? I didn't. No, I hadn't even thought of the pilot. I like and the I'm, idea I'm kind of just of... doing it as a joke, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the idea of kind of replicating the scenario of grabbing a, a new comedian and so... kind of... Uh, Maybe hiding him a little bit less than they than they hid Jack Black, yeah. but a diamond in the rough. So uh, this actress I know from the TV show Mythic Quest, which isn't mm-hmm. as well known as it probably should be, but she's one of the two. Ga- and honestly, what I was looking at, I was like, either of the two gamer girls would work. They're both oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, and I ended up going with uh, Imani Hakim. Okay. For a little bit of variety. As, you yes. know, Dana. Yeah, Dana. <laughs> um, yeah. Thinking about this would be so uh, this would be so cheeky is putting what's her face Ashley Birch Ashley Birch in the thank seat. you in the gunner seat to die. I mean that would be real cheeky, but if you did if you wanted to be no you couldn't do this. I mean you could do that. I don't have any problem with doing that. I think it's yeah. funny and tragic. And if you give her a good like it's like a surprise like you think it's going to be this great amazing thing and then you're like no. <laughs> And it, only the people who know would know, but they'd know. Yeah. So we can cast, <laughs> we can cast both Ashley Birch and Amani Hakim as like they're flying the plane. They are the they are the plane people. Yeah. And we can put them in the big aviator helmets with the goggles and things like that. Um, but I would put Ashley Birch behind the gun. 
because she also has her history of voice work as Tiny Tina in the Borderlands series. And oh. so you could just have her screaming out rat-a-tat-tat or something along those lines <laughs> yeah. as she's firing the gun. You don't need to see her face yeah. to I... enjoy her acting. Plus, it's the gunner that gets the one F-bomb in the whole oh, movie. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. I also, I when I was considering Ashley Birch, I thought that uh, you two might appreciate her just because she does voiceover work in Attack on Titan. And that seems like it might be your jam. I've never seen it. Yeah, wow. it's an anime. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Fair enough. I jumped to a conclusion and it was wrong. Um, okay, so then <laughs> we need to go back to uh, the Mariner. And it sounds like we were going back and forth between Gwendolyn Christie and Adam Driver. I am good with yeah. both of these. But Julia, because you gave up your uh, your suggestion for this, that means it's your choice. Between Adam Driver and Gwendolyn Christie... Who would you like to see in this role? Adam Driver. Because Great. I think he can be meaner. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Well, I think the Mariner needs to start out being like crazy mean. I think he needs to make Enola work for it. Plus, I want you to envision in your head a shot. Uh, we're in the third act of the movie. Uh, the Mariner is pursuing the slavers so that he can save Helen and Enola and by extension all of the other people that were taken back in act one and there's a shot it's kind of dark um, we're at the edge of the pirate flotilla and you see Adam Driver like break the surface of the water his long lanky arms like reach up and grab the deck and he lifts himself up out of the water and he kind of like you know, arches his shoulder, like just to give it a real animalistic view. And I think you could really play up the fact that, oh, this guy doesn't consider himself human and he's going to use his mutant abilities to infiltrate this den of vipers Into to it. save the people that he cares about. Yep. Yep, I love Has he ever that. played an aggressive protagonist? Hmm. That is a good question. Because like that's really person? what I'm going for. I mean, that's I mean, how I describe in... his character in Marriage was... Story. I have purposely not watched that movie because I think it's going to make me sad and I'm afraid. <laughs> I've also not watched it, but I've seen the memes. Yeah, like there's a lot of yelling and a lot of crying. Yeah, that's an, aggressive, that prota- that's an aggressive protagonist. It's true. Yep. <laughs> uh, and that pl- mixed with his infiltration from Black Klansmen and you're good. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah, I, like I just I, I think he, I I think he'll do otherworldly very well. I agree. Uh, so that brings us <laughs> to right. our writer and our director, um, which is where I have zero experience. So good luck, sir. <laughs> I've got people. Uh, Julia, did you have anyone for this? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> okay, great. Then let me tell you who our writer and director. <laughs> Wonderful. So I'm going to start with writers. So uh, because of. So this was really hard because if you're looking for like sci-fi dystopia kind of writer, like you're going to get kind of lost in the weeds of like, oh, it's, I mean, if I'm being honest, I wanted it to have a little bit, I wanted one of them to be male, one of them to be female, just to have like, it just not to be all dudes all the time. Because like you go down the list and it's just like all this, these sci-fi writers just do, 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 And it's a lot. So I ended up finding uh, this writer finding i didn't find her she existed she was there i had no uh (laughs) i had no say in the matter but she's great so um she is the writer from most recently the birds of prey movie she also wrote bumblebee the only good transformer movie 
She wrote Unforgettable, and she's written a lot of comic book stuff. She like she writes for DC Comics a lot. Uh, this writer is named Christina Hodson. Okay. That sounds like the perfect CV for this. I think somebody with comic book experience would be really fantastic to write. Um, some of the best parts of the original movie could translate to a comic book cell. Like the whole, the attack on the atoll that I can, um, I can picture right now how that would look in a graphic novel and it's perfect. And I want those things to carry over. I want that um, writing style to carry over. And I wanted her because like, even like in like the Bumblebee movie, like she has a, a young woman, like develop a relationship with some, someone inhuman. Oh man. And it works. Mm-hmm. And, and like, so for me, I, it was important for me that the writer would put in and like make scriptural, the connections and the character stuff, because I want my director to build the world. Mm-hmm. So I want someone who had like, this guy's worked a lot like a lot a lot like it's a, like it's a name um but like he has this whole style of like really building interesting worlds and connections of people and he also has a tendency to like take a little bit more control but also like keep costs down and i want to see all the shortcuts and tricks and cheating ways to build the atoll and the ship and everything like i want it to look like it was cobbled together out of garbage and I think that the people, the guy who's going to be able to do that is a guy who directed Once Upon a Time in Mexico and Alita Battle Angel and Machete and Spy Kids. I want Robert Rodriguez. Okay. I could dig it. Absolutely. That mix of action and fun and some over-the-topness and good storytelling. Yes. I remember watching Alita Battle Angel and it's... Yeah, you really liked it, didn't you? It was really enjoyable. And I, granted, I had no horse in the race. I had no experience with the the manga or whatever. But, you know, I really enjoyed it. They definitely (laughs) build the entire city below the city in the sky. It's built out of the city in the sky's trash. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. Um, Yeah. Speaking of someone working in sci-fi and making something out of nothing... Uh, what do you think about John Favreau as a director? I I mean I love John Favreau as a director. Uh and like the things that I would reference, I mean obviously because he did Iron Man and like everything else, but also he did Chef and he like gets in the nitty-gritty. I think he's a very very mm-hmm. good director and he's doing The Mandalorian and he's able to build that world very well. Like he plays with IP excellently. Yeah. The only downside is that it's white. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I have, I have no problem going with John Favreau if, once again, we have two options and Julia chooses that. <laughs> oh, I choose Sam's option. What was his name again? Robert Rodriguez. Robert Rodriguez, definitely. Robert Rodriguez Sorry. has made a lot of really fun movies that have a lot of style to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's definitely I made a to... lot of garbage, but he's also made a lot of good movies. Yeah. yeah. I have tended to shy away from Marvel players. Because I, it's hard it's, to tell it, how much they actually write. Yeah, and they're just so they're so out there in the front. Like let's let's bring some people from the brat from the back and bring them to the front. Yeah, and people well. who who work for Marvel, who act and write and direct for them, they're already out front. I agree with that philosophy. 
So if we're going to if we're going to do this, let's bring some people from the Good. back. All right. If we're getting, I, I will say Robert if Rodriguez. We're Robert is Rodriguez. Not in the back, but yeah, I think what I mean, I think is, and I this may be just my perspective is that Marvel is just everywhere, and it feels so all encompassing, and there's just so much going on. Like every new movie, it feels like that's coming out is a Marvel property, and we're so anticipating the next Marvel thing. Yeah, that. I I feel the need to not. <laughs> All right. There so, are other good things and other good people. My main question is, if we're getting Robert Rodriguez to direct this, do you think he could get us Steve Buscemi to be the depth gauge guy? I mean, only if he gets to say the line that he says in Spy Kids too. Uh, do you think? Do you think God <laughs> stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? I just want oh, that Steve is so Buscemi. fitting. <laughs> I want him in that little rowboat floating in a giant gas tank. And then when the flare comes so down. So that way, he says, oh, thank God. I, I will say <laughs> I I will say that like, I didn't remember much from the first time I watched the movie. I remembered uh, uh, Kevin Costner kissing, like, like fe- f- feeding her oxygen underwater. And I remembered, oh, oh thank yeah. God. Yeah. Kevin Costner doesn't kiss Gene Triplehorn. He oh. presses his face up against her. Yeah, but and that is the most generous thing you could say. I was in seven. In the grade. novelization, what do they call it, Rick? <sighs> Rescue kisses. Oh no, that's oh gross. It... <sighs> but anyway, we've got our cast. So let me take you through our cast for. Um, uh, how do you turn this into a two pun? Or Waterworld. But again, Waterworld. Uh, it's real this time. <laughs> Uh, Mariner slash Ulysses slash Morgan will be portrayed by Adam Driver. Helen will be America Ferreira. And Nola will be some amazing kid that those casting directors who are paying so much finds and is going to be great. Deacon is going to be Michael Rooker. Our lieutenant is going to be David Ajala. Uh, Old Gregor will be Alfre Woodard. Our enforcer guy will be Jason Momoa. Our pilot uh, airplane gunner pairing will be Amani Hakim and Ashley Birch. All of this will be written by Christina Hodson and then directed and then directed by Robert Rodriguez. That is our new version of Waterworld. So Julia, Rick, you two gonna go see this movie? Oh, opening night. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both for contributing so much time to remaking this movie with me. So if people want to listen to like you deep dive even more into Waterworld and into Mad Max and everything. Tell us about where they can find you. Tell us about Mad Max Minute and your social media stuff. Absolutely. If people want to hear more from us, they can go to our website, which is madmaxminute.com. On there, you can find links to all of our social media, which includes Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can search us directly on those platforms by just looking for Mad Max Minute. We have five seasons with the fifth season currently releasing episodes covering all four Mad Max films, including the Waterworld film. We're covering that H2O minutes at a time. And (laughs) if you are interested in supporting us in what we do, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Mad Max men. We release episodes twice a month on every other Friday where we pick a movie off of our long list of related films and we talk about it and we have a lot of fun there. 
and social medias for you personally if you choose to share them? Oh, if you want to find me specifically, you can search for Rick D. Rekt on Instagram, and I think that's the same thing on Twitter. I don't post a whole lot, so <laughs> you're not going to get a ton of hot takes from me. <laughs> Julia, if people want to follow you specifically on the social medias, where can they go? Oh, I am not on social media so much. Good for you. Uh, yeah, I do all my internet stuff through Mad Max Minute. <laughs> Great. Cool. Um, if you're interested in following me on Twitter, uh, since I, I cannot get away, I am at Sam Gash, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H. Or you can follow the podcast, Ideal Remake, on Twitter or Instagram, or join us on Facebook, Ideal Remake, our Ideal Remake podcast. You can watch these episodes on YouTube. If you're a YouTube podcaster, I know you exist. I know you're out there, and I see you. And one of the things that we're trying to do in the Dueling Genre Network is promote each other. So the other Dueling Genre podcast I want to tell you about today is called The New Republic Archives. That is hosted by Gary Robbie and Tim Garcia. And that's every other Thursday. Uh, Hosts Gary Robbie and Tim Garcia are huge fans of Star Wars and celebrating the full breadth of the extended universe one media property at a time. So if if you like Star Wars, maybe uh, New Republic Archives? Who can say? We will end uh, the way we always do by saying rick julia first of all thank you second of all what is your favorite quote from the movie Waterworld? oh my gosh that's a really hard question <laughs> i mean there's an obvious answer and we just talked about it like my obvious answer is oh thank is, god oh thank god which, yeah, is, I... which makes sense to finally say now here at the end of this episode <laughs> <laughs> we finally reached the end oh thank god oh thank god <laughs> I, I think I don't have a favorite quote. Say, my favorite quote of the entirety of Waterworld is the heartbroken wail of grief that erupts from Kevin Costner when he says, My boat. <laughs> <laughs> Just like that.